Hi team, and welcome back to this week's e-commerce experts episode. Firstly, a huge thank you to everyone who has liked, commented, subscribed, or messaged us so far on the series. Uh, we've really, really enjoyed making it. We're going to keep bringing you this content every single week with brand experts to hear exactly what they do, what works for them, what doesn't work for them in the hope that you can take a couple of pieces of information, a couple of key takeaways back to your business. And the next couple of episodes are super, super exciting. This week, we have Jessica from Kimai joining us. Now, not only is she Forbes 30 under 30, but she's also founded this ethical diamond company, which is really interesting for the simple fact of they lab produce diamonds. We particularly focused this week on the mega Markle effect and what it was like for them getting to that size, Meghan Markle endorsing their brand, how they have tried to replicate that and what has or hasn't happened as a result. So I hope you find this one as interesting as I did. Without further ado, here she is. Well, thank you ever so much, Jessica, for joining us today. I really, really appreciate it, particularly given how busy you must be right now. No, I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) No, with everything. The world break opening up again. Yeah. Busy time for retail. And I imagine Q4 is your biggest quarter. Definitely. So Forbes 30 under 30, it's an impressive title. I'm imagining yeah. you never set out to be on the list. Not really, but I think like any entrepreneur kind of like look up to that list because it's what the industry is looking up to. So yeah, I think it's exciting. But at the same time, like we were the year that COVID happened. So like we weren't able to do any events or anything like those so I think a lot of people aim for it because it's well known in the industry but yeah definitely you'll have your time so when you instantly <laughs> set up Kime were you going in there planning to disrupt the industry or how did it come about because not many 20 something decide I'm going to set up an ethical diamond business it's, it's unique yeah I think definitely that was the goal because Sydney and myself we both come from diamond and trading families and jewelers so we've always been around diamonds and jewelry always seen firsthand kind of like the importance of it because jewelry is very emotional it comes with a story behind the memory of a person of a moment etc but at the same time it also made us at the forefront of all the controversies from blood diamond to child labor we really just felt that many industries were evolving with us as younger customers but that industry was one that has never evolved with us in terms of transparency, in terms of like marketing, the way they talk to their customer, always targeting men, etc. So our main goal was how can we keep that importance of jewelry and make it more transparent, more ethical, and yeah, and more relevant to us as younger customers today. So that was definitely how we started the brand, the main mission, and it still is our mission is really to change that industry mindset, change the way the supply chain and educate the customers. Amazing. So just for those of us that don't know, can you muse us on what the difference is between a lab-grown diamond versus a mined diamond? Yeah, of course. So basically today, thanks to technology, we're able to reproduce the mining environment in the lab. And actually a diamond is made 100% out of carbon. And by reproducing the environment, which means it starts with a carbon seed, and we grow it in a high-pressure and high-temperature environment, we're able to grow those diamonds in the exact same way as they would under Earth, but in a more controlled environment, meaning that those diamonds are chemically and physically identical. 
it's impossible to tell them apart. Even a diamond trader or a certified gemologist won't be able to see a difference. And yeah, there's only one very specialized machine that can differentiate one from another. But it's important to note as well, for example, the FTC in the US has changed the definition of a diamond by taking the word natural out of it, really showing that like a labyrinth diamond today is a diamond. Wow, that's amazing, actually, that only one machine can tell the difference. You would have thought, like anything else that is chemically produced, that you would be able to identify the difference. So that's really quite special. Is it, I appreciate that you are, I've seen an interview before where you mentioned that a typical diamond will exchange hands 10 times before it gets to its owner. And there is the huge ethical piece around people who are mining diamonds and workers' conditions. Is there any other sustainability benefits of a lab-grown diamond over a mine diamond? The main points are definitely like, firstly, the environmental impact. So in order to get less than one carat rough diamond, you need to dig deeper and deeper nowadays, relocating complete population and really leaving a huge hole on earth. Then secondly, as you just said, like the social impact is huge as well, because like children are working in mines. They're very, very poorly paid. There is a lot of issues like with blood diamond, although there's new regulations that came into place, there's a lot of loopholes and it's very, very hard to control. And then, of course, like the transparency in general from the mine to like the end customers, it goes through more than 15 hands and you just don't know where it comes from. So those three points are like the most important for us and something we really want to make a change. So you consider yourself to be a sustainable brand? I don't like the word sustainable. Because I think it's like an overused word in general, in marketing, in fashion, in any industry we're talking about. But yeah, we consider ourselves being like a transparent brand, an ethical brand that we're not perfect. And we never claim we're 100% sustainable because I do think that like creating a brand, anyone that creates a brand can't be 100% sustainable because you're creating a new product. The main thing for us, it's about like, educating ourselves, figuring out ways to do things better, and even as a brand, further improving over time. So yes, we're an ethical brand. We have complete control over the supply chain. We know where our diamonds come from. They come from a lab where the energy is mostly renewable. And this is something that we want to further improve as well. The jewelers are all based in Antwerp. We all know them personally. We visit them daily etc which makes us kind of yeah more ethical alternative i don't like the word sustainable but i would say that's the way yeah it's described today at least but it's also so we'll use the word ethical instead ethical and transparent i think for us it's about yeah. being transparent being super honest with our customers if someone has a question we're here to answer it and not hiding anything and that's what we're here for and when and in the not hiding part comes also the fact that when we're not doing something 100% sustainable, we'll say it. And the reasons are because we're in an industry where it's hard to have everything 100% sustainable. If you think of packaging for most brands, like it's very hard to have 100% sustainable packaging. So that's something we're honest about with our customer and figuring out ways behind the scenes to like improve it further. And I think as the economy becomes more green, that will be more accessible to you, right? Because 100%. You are a relatively small band in a very large marketplace. And actually, yeah. as we had Bybee, the beauty brand on, and they were saying they had to lobby together to get the manufacturer to change. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's part of being a small brand is you can help activate the change, but you, you do sure. need others to join you. Otherwise, 
Definitely. And I think it's not even just the industry, it's just the world we're living. It should come from the government, from those kind of like power in order to have an impact. Because like, it's just, you need to work with what's available and definitely look for alternative, but sometimes you don't have an option. Don't get me started on the government. We'll leave that for another day. So what do you wish you had known at the beginning of your journey? Is there anything you, in hindsight, think other founders should know that? I think there's two parts to it. Because like one part is like, I'm happy I didn't know (laughs) most of the things we learned afterwards. Because I felt like being kind of naive enabled us to launch without asking ourselves too many questions and without looking into the kind of like negative part of like being an entrepreneur, getting into an, etc. So I feel like most founders that kind of launch without knowing are able to do much more and dare to do much more than if you already know almost of the thing. But I do think in general, like it's a super rewarding journey, but I feel like the main thing, and I was actually with the founder this morning and we said like the main thing people aren't talking about is that it comes as well with a lot of challenges. And like, it comes with a lot of ups and downs. Like it's not always going to be an amazing day because like you have a lot of challenges along the way. And I feel like that's something people don't really talk about enough because like when you talk about entrepreneurship, you see only the amazing side to it. In the past months and years, mostly in the US as well, like people have been much more open about what it takes as well to like launch a company, like being an entrepreneur, hire the right team, etc. And I think that's something important. So I wouldn't say I wish I knew it because I think like in general, like I'm so happy I we were so naive and so uh, unconscious and were able to launch that way because I feel like otherwise you wouldn't launch. But I think it's also important to be conscious about the fact that like it's not always what you're seeing on the outside. It's interesting. Holly Tucker, the founder of Not On The High Street, said exactly the same thing. She said, I wish I could be that naive again because... I would be able to found another business in a heartbeat, but unfortunately I'm never yeah. well I can appreciate that entirely. And actually you guys have done a round of seed funding. And so no one can be prepared for that based on everything I've heard. No mm-hmm. one can understand how demoralizing and how, how much of a rough experience it is trying to get the funding to take your business to the next level. So yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right in not wanting to change it, but we shouldn't glamorize it. We shouldn't glamorize mm. the fact that entrepreneurship is all Lamborghinis and selling your business for 300 yeah. million. It's definitely, <laughs> there are more rough days to start with, for sure. So I jested with you at the beginning of this, just before we came on air, but Meghan Markle, she mm. put your brand into the stratosphere. It's and Emma Watson, actually. Let's give Hermione Granger some credit. Has that level of influencer helped Has it helped brand or is there a measurable way of tracking how that's impacted your sales? For sure. So I think like there's a difference between influencers and a Meghan Markle. I think those are two completely different things because we in general as a brand don't do much gifting. We don't do much influencer strategy as people would call it just because like our product is expensive. Social media is overcrowded nowadays. So it's really hard to measure the impact of it. You can measure it with the number of followers that you're going to earn from it, but you'll never, it's going to be very hard to measure it with uh, sales unless you give a discount code, which we're not in the business for. But in terms of Meghan Markle, definitely. The main thing for us was like, we started the brand with very little funding. So like, if we look at our website back then, like I'm ashamed of it because we really started to test out the market, like launching a few pieces, a very simplified website. 
and then see how things goes. At the beginning, it was really just friends and family trying to like make a name for ourselves as really in you know, a super small community without having money to spend on marketing. And so our only strength at that point was really getting in touch with the right people. So like talking influencers, celebrities. And doing so by hustling, figuring out the right email, the right contact, sending emails, telling them about our story, et cetera. And so at that point, like Megan Markle, when she wore our pieces, it was only two months after our launch. So, yeah. So like we didn't have anything before. It was really like friends and family, some small sales. So the day she wore our pieces, we saw the impact on sales straight away. So that's definitely measurable. But in general, I think, it's trickier usually to measure it. And that's why I say like there's a huge difference between like any influencer and a Meghan Markle kind of impact. So you wouldn't have seen the same level with Emma Watson, I'm imagining, because Meghan Markle was at the time that you got the coverage, the person yeah, every page. The main thing is like Emma Watson is not as mediatized. Meghan Markle is super mediatized. And there were a few impact firstly it's like she's super meditized like everything she wears is going into press secondly it was the first event she went to with her baby bump so even more meditized than usual and thirdly in the fine jewelry and fashion industry lab grand diamond has been a topic but like still very unknown and back then like most people never heard about those diamonds and a lot of people were still questioning it and it's the first time that royalty was seen wearing lab grand diamond. So there were those three kind of aspects that really pushed it even further. And Emma Watson, she's amazing. Like for us, it's a great accomplishment to see her wear our pieces, but she's not as mediatized. She's more behind the scenes. So like if someone knows she's wearing our pieces, it's through like maybe us reaching out to press to let them know rather than like it's coming straight away from her. That's really interesting. And it's good to know that that's how you use it because I think it's a piece of, I mean, not true influencer, but it's a piece mm. of influencer strategy that not everyone knows. Not everyone realizes that the way you get that coverage is by telling the press. For they sure, for sure, yeah. Whereas the majority Definitely. of the time, they wait for it to come to them and they expect the press mm. to have done the research. And equally, it's great that you go out and reach out to these influencers to work with you beyond gifting. I think. Yeah. You say you don't have a core influencer strategy, but the fact that you reach out to partner with the right people is, again, yeah. the right approach. Definitely. No, Megan Markle, she bought the pieces because, like, she can't accept gifts. But in general, yeah, I think in general, it's about figuring out ways to get the word out there. And definitely press loves seeing famous people, like, wearing your brand. So it's a great way to create a story. And you need to, like, feed them with different stories all the time. So... It's all about, yeah, figuring out what's going to work at what time. Personal question. How did it feel for you two months after the launching to <sighs> see the biggest female celebrity in the UK wearing your pieces? Honestly, I think for like a week we were in a bubble. Like I didn't understand what was happening to us. Because like my co-founder was still in her full-time job and the team was me and her. So we delivered the pieces. We we're like, okay, she's going to wear them. So like every day for a month, that happened a month after our launch. And like every day for a month, we were Googling Meghan Markle. Where is she? <laughs> we were waiting for it. And at the same time, you have hope, but you don't know if she's going to wear them. At one point, we're like, okay, let's make... So we don't have inventory. Everything's made to order. So we're like, let's make some stock just in case she wears them. Like, okay, let's make seven pieces. We never know if she wears 
And then when it happened, we, we were in a meeting and then we get a notification on Instagram. I think like one of the news outlets tagging us with Meghan Markle in the same sentence. And I become blank. And like, I'm like to my co-founder, to Sydney, I'm like, we're in a meeting talking to someone. We just couldn't talk anymore. And then what happened next is like we had a lot of sales and like we needed to fulfill it. And we were the one doing all the logistics. We were the one packing, sending it to customers. So I think it was a month of sleepless nights, but at the same time, exciting. And at the same time, we just didn't understand what was happening. That's amazing, though. And it's yeah. a lovely story. It's obviously a yeah. moment that will stay with you forever because it had yeah. such a profound impact. Did Sydney get to give up her job after that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely straight away. <laughs> wow. That's another milestone then. You know, you had two full-time employees from that point onwards. Yeah. Wow, that is such an amazing story. <laughs> so now you're doing engagement rings and you're starting to branch out to perhaps potentially more expensive, more emotive pieces. How do you manage to hold the customer's hand through that journey online? Because without getting the opportunity to try it on in store, you're asking for them to spend quite a lot of money. Definitely. And to be honest, we didn't plan on launching Engagement Ring that early on. Because for us, just in general, like we're an approachable brand in terms of fine jewelry, but we still have like a certain price point. So we thought even when launching the brand, we were going to cap our prices at $1,000 instead of like going above because who, who's going to spend that money online? Like it's a more, it's a complicated purchase, you need a store, etc. And actually launched pieces above $1,000 and they were performing super well. And then when COVID hit, what happened is that we got a lot of demand for engagement ring. Firstly, people are becoming more and more conscious. So we're really looking for an alternative, which is Labyrinth Diamond. Secondly, most stores were closed. So most people didn't know where to go for engagement ring because all those big brands don't have an online presence. And actually, in terms of Labyrinth Diamond, our role is to educate the customers. And in terms of education, we thought, okay, it's easy to educate them with more affordable pieces. Engagement ring is going to be a trickier one, like it's going to come much later down the line. But actually, the industry has moved much faster than expected. There's more education about the topic and demand came in. And that's how we took the decision to like launch it almost a year ago. But the main point with us, and I think why people trust us in making those purchases online, is that we offer a service. We're not just here, like go on the website, figure it out for yourself and purchase it. What we do is we get on calls with customers. We make it like... For us, what's important is really the personal relationship with our customer. We want to know them, like what are they looking for? If it's based on budget, on wants, on design, and we're here to like walk them through the entire process. And it's a very personalized process. And we can create engagement ring bespoke that aren't on our website. So I think in general, like our customers, why they trust us so much, it's also because we are super approachable. They can call us, they can Instagram DM us, we'll answer them like, We'll meet up with them if needed. If we're in Paris, we'll meet up with clients in Paris. If we're in New York, we'll meet up with clients in, pa- in New York. And really want to keep that personal kind of touch, which is super important. That is really important. And it's unheard of because it's exemplary customer service. You're going out of your way to meet up with them in yeah. cities you're not necessarily in. It's a lovely personal touch. Do you think it's yeah. going to be feasible as you grow to continue? Definitely. Definitely. The main thing is like, most of the sales of engagement, we've done them online. So like the Zoom kind of like side of things, people are getting used to it and people are getting used to spend much bigger average order value online. So we're seeing that switch already impacting people's uh, purchasing straight away. But over time, having like 
stores in our main key locations is going to be important as well, like to meet clients for those that aren't as comfortable as others to purchase online and continue with those one-on-one meetings is going to be a key part of our business. Yeah. I've got to ask as well, what core do you trust with your jewelry? Because (laughs) I imagine returns and lost items could make or break a business like yours. Yeah. So we trust DHL. Uh, We're not paid for it. (laughs) But yeah, we trust DHL. We... Of course, you always have, you might have issues, but we haven't seen many. We also insure all the packages. And yeah, and luckily enough, we don't have much returns at all. So I know it's not a sexy question, but let's be honest, it can really damage an e-commerce brand. Mm. And with the value of items that you're sending mm. out, I ordered a very expensive item the other day and I found it weird that it was being delivered by DPD. Not because yeah. I don't approve of DPD, but I just kind of thought, I get my Amazon parcels from DPD. Yeah, I'm not sure how I feel about having a one two thousand pound object coming with DPD. Yeah. Do I trust them? It, yeah, no, I agree. I think it's an interesting topic. I think you can see it with Netaporte how they do it for like uh, I think it's Premiere where you have someone with a, a suit coming and shipping it for you. I think it's definitely something to look into later on. But as a young startup today, it's also about like what's feasible and also about what's secure. And I felt that like definitely it's one perspective, but at the same time, how the world is evolving, people are so used to like purchasing online. As long as like the packaging offers the experience you're looking for, you don't really wonder too much where like how it got to you, kind of. Like as long as it's secure, like where it requires signature for all the parcels, etc. Definitely an interesting topic to look into for the future. Of course. And so how many countries are you selling to now? So our biggest markets are like US, France, and UK. So those are our focus. We do sell like all around Europe and sometimes have some weird location abroad. But those are our three main markets. So not actually in Belgium, the home of where you Yeah, make- actually Belgium, but I count it into France. So like it's France and Belgium. <laughs> to be fair, it's diamond home of the world. So I could understand you didn't sell there because there might be a slight biasness towards the archaic traditional mine diamond. Mm. It's just interesting because I thought it was fascinating that you're you're in London and yeah. actually where it all goes on. It all happens in Antwerp. Exactly. Um, so your website talks quite a bit about transparency. You touched on it earlier. How important do you think transparency is to a consumer today? It's key. <laughs> I think it's definitely key. What I often say is we're the generation that wasn't conscious we learned and are still learning and are like educating ourselves and it's becoming more and more important for our generation but for the younger generation i feel old saying it but like the younger generation it's not even a question that's what they're looking for that they want the answer they have access to all kind of information in a second and they just want the answers about like where their things were made where it's coming from etc what we're seeing is definitely going into in the, the engagement ring market. That's where like it's the people that come to us for engagement ring, they came to us firstly for the lab grown diamond aspect and therefore sustain, like transparency, sustainability aspect. Secondly, definitely for everything we're offering on top of it. But you wouldn't make that kind of purchase if you weren't interested in the transparency aspect of your piece. I agree. And actually your generational point, I think, is very on point. Because actually, you're right, we can find our parents come from a generation where they couldn't find everything out at the click of a button. We can now find out how ethical a business is, how they treat their staff. I mean, look at the recent BrewDog scandal. Exactly. It's a example. It doesn't, there are so many. 
yeah, yeah. It two minutes for that news to get out well thank you ever so much for your time I really appreciate it we always end with the same kind of question and that is what's your favorite e-commerce brand right now other than Kimmel of course of course, <laughs> I have so many, but I think like one, because they just launched their new campaign and I think they're doing amazingly well. It's called Emelion Doré, which is a New York-based brand. They also have a store in New York and like their art direction is so, so, so on point and like really, really inspiring what they're doing. But then like there's loads of small businesses I love, like there's a brand called Riley Studio in London. There's a brand called Gia, which is non-alcoholic spirit in the U.S crown affair which is for hair care like i'm looking at all those like young female founded startups that i really look up to female founders are the way forward i love it (laughs) if you could ask our next guest on our podcast one question what would it be so my question would be how do you keep sane with everything's happening how do you do it i like that i think that's a really good (laughs) question ironically dave's question the one before was where is your favorite place? Where's your favorite place in nature? Like, where is love? love where is it? Yeah. Where is your favorite place in nature? So, last year I went for like a three day trek in France in the mountains, and that oh. was amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That sounds pretty beautiful. Super right. nature. Because I think like beaches are super nice as well if you're on an empty beach. Like, being in the mountains in the middle of nowhere, it's like meditation. <laughs> you didn't know this, but that was the perfect answer because Dave is the founder of Outkit. Being, no way. Yeah, genuinely. Yeah, <gasps> founded, um, which is a sustainable, a very ethical brand that offers low value outdoors equipment and outdoor clothing. Amazing. So hilarious that you then said the Alps. I'm going to tell him that and he'll love it. <laughs> Thank you so, so much for having me. No, I really appreciate your time. I can't imagine how busy you are, but please say hello to Sydney for us. And I hope you have a really good productive afternoon i will i will but thank you so so much and uh hopefully we'll meet in person one day <laughs> yes please when you launch that store i'm there i'll, I'll let you know i'll definitely let you know Thanks, thank Jessica. you so much for your time yeah. talk to you soon Bye.